Sorry, I realized my mic was off. Uh, you may be seated. The other day, I came across an article uh, called Virtue Signaling Our Spirituality in a Digital Age. As you might guess from the title, uh, the article was basically about the way that social media has become just the latest platform for people to demonstrate the sinful impulse to live out our spirituality in order to be seen by others. Like the Pharisees uh, that Jesus said sought honor at the feasts and greetings in the marketplaces. Facebook and Instagram are sort of the virtual marketplaces of our society. They are the places where we can demonstrate our piety in a public way. Please don't misunderstand me. I don't think there's anything sinful about using these tools as a way of sort of journaling the things that we love. And if we love the Lord, then I expect that that will also be reflected in our presence online and in social media and the like. Uh, But if you spend 20 minutes setting up a shot for the right view of your morning devotions, so you get the angle just right and choose the right filter and then you spend five minutes reading your Bible, uh, there's probably a danger there for you to consider. A danger of what Jesus calls practicing our righteousness in order to be seen by others. It's easy to pick on social media. The reality is there are a thousand ways in which we might be guilty of the kinds of things that Jesus is speaking of here which really only serves the point that this same sinful impulse of hypocrisy that Jesus is describing in this passage is not anything new. Uh, And it is alive and as dangerous today as it was in his day. And as we begin this chapter, uh, chapter 23 of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus gives a series of sobering warnings and woes. In fact, if we were uh, going to divide Matthew 23 and outline it, we might outline it with the headings, warnings, woes, and weepings. Warnings, as Jesus here begins the chapter by warning the crowds and the disciples about the dangers of the hypocrisy of Israel's religious leaders. That leads into a series of seven woes which Jesus pronounces upon them. And then the chapter ends with Jesus himself weeping over Jerusalem and over the desolation of its house. Today, as we start Matthew 23, we're going to look just at this first part, the warnings that Jesus puts before us. And as we do... Uh, we should be mindful of what Paul will say later, that these things are written for our instructions so that we might not fall by the same sort of disobedience. Uh, Even as we contemplate uh, the disobedience and hypocrisy of Israel's religious elite, we're brought face to face with a consideration of our own obedience, our own disobedience. But we're also brought face to face 
with the obedience and the humble sincerity of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so even as we are convicted of our own sins here, may the Lord use this portion of his word to also comfort us in the knowledge of Christ and then to conform us more into his image. So as we work our way then through this passage, let me again give you three points just to sort of help structure your thinking as we consider not only the kinds of servant-hearted leaders that we should look for, but also the kind of servant-hearted people that we should be, and the servant-hearted kind of Savior that Jesus is. And so the first point today we'll be looking at is heavy-handed leaders in verses 1 through 4 as Jesus describes them, heavy-handed leaders. Secondly, we'll consider hypocritical leaders in verses 5 through 7, hypocritical leaders. And then finally, we'll look at humble leaders in verses 8 through 12, the heavy-handed, the hypocritical, and the humble. As we settle into the passage here this morning, we need to remember the context, right? It's still Tuesday in the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. I feel like I've been saying that for many weeks now. It's still Tuesday. It's been a long day for Jesus. Uh, It's been packed full of parables and probing questions, parables which were pointed at these same religious leaders exposing their wickedness, Uh, probing questions which were pointed at Jesus as they plotted to discredit him in front of the crowds. And that is the context which now gives way to chapter 23 and to these words of warning and to the woes that we find. We read here that Jesus said to the crowds and to the disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, and so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, laying them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Notice that the scribes and the Pharisees are no longer in the scene. Uh, They have gone away. Having done their best to discredit Jesus, they were ultimately the ones who were discredited and silenced by his answers. And so Jesus is no longer actually addressing the scribes and Pharisees. He's now addressing the crowds the crowds of Passover pilgrims that would be there in Jerusalem, he's addressing these crowds and his disciples about the scribes and the Pharisees. Maybe it's good to just take a moment to remind you who these men are. The scribes and the Pharisees have been linked together throughout the gospel. Uh, They're two different groups um, which don't necessarily overlap, but often did. The scribes were like trained theologians. Uh, They were serious students of God's Word. They were charged with not only keeping and copying the sacred writings, but also of interpreting them to God's people. Uh, The Pharisees were a religious movement that emphasized the doing of God's law, not just the understanding of it, but the application of it, devoting themselves to lives of holiness. And so not all scribes were Pharisees, but many and most of them were. And so they're often named together as the teachers of Israel. 
What's interesting, though, is that before Jesus begins his critique of them as being heavy-handed, he actually begins by saying something pretty positive. And maybe it's even surprising to us. He begins by saying that the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you. Is that a surprising acknowledgement to you? After all, ordinarily, if you are looking to gain an advantage in an argument, you don't usually begin by endorsing the authority of your opponents. And yet that's exactly what Jesus does here. And I think it's, it's incredibly important for the way we think about authority and office. There are many who, who think that what Jesus says later in this passage when he says that you are not to be called teachers, neither be called instructors. There are those who argue that Jesus is saying we shouldn't have any teachers or instructors in the church. It's been a persistent error throughout the course of church history. The Anabaptists, in many ways, embodied this error. But it's not what Jesus is saying. In fact, he begins by acknowledging Uh, Old Testament offices of authority. He says, they sit on Moses' seat. Well, what is that? What is he talking about? Moses' seat was a metaphorical way of speaking about the teaching authority of Moses, but it was also actually symbolized in Jewish synagogues with an actual seat. Uh, Jewish synagogues had a stone seat in the synagogues, which was referred to as, can you, can you guess what it was called? That's right, it was Moses' seat. And it was a symbol of the authority that teachers had. Jesus here is quoting from Deuteronomy 17, 8 through 10, where Moses was explaining to God's people, what's going to happen when I die? What is going to happen when I am no longer here to interpret and to apply to you the law of God. What are the people to do? Well, they are to go, as Moses says, to the priest or to the judge, to the one who is in office in those days, and you shall consult them, and they shall declare to you the decision. Then you shall do according to what they declare to you from that place that the Lord will choose, and you shall be careful to do all that they direct you. When Jesus says, do and observe whatever they tell you, he's acknowledging the authority of these teachers of the law to declare the word of God to God's people. Uh, Sometimes in our Reformed tradition, we will speak of this as ministerial and declarative authority. That is to say that God's leaders are meant to be ministers of His Word, not of their own, and they are to declare His Word, not their own, to others. That language of being ministerial and declarative underscores, as John Payne says, that the church has, is not of a legislative nature. In other words, uh, the officers of the church do not make laws, They do not make statutes and promises. They declare and enforce the laws, statutes, and promises of God's inspired and inerrant word. 
So you can see this is why Jesus can distinguish between the authority of their office and the abuse of that authority as they began to teach things contrary to God's Word, as he says they do in Matthew 15, where you'll remember they're nullifying the Word of God for the sake of their traditions. Or here, where they are commanding a heavy-handed sort of application of God's law. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, laying them on people's shoulders. The language there of tying up heavy burdens might better be translated binding heavy burdens. Uh, The idea here is of binding people's consciences. It's technical language for their uh, rendering a religious ruling so that the people feel they are forced, in order to obey God's law, to obey the particular applications that these men had set. Think of just some examples that we've seen throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Think of the way that the Pharisees go after the disciples for plucking heads of grain as they walked through the fields and said, aha, you're reaping. You're reaping on the Sabbath. You're, you're breaking God's law. Or think about the way they go after Jesus for healing a man on the Sabbath. You're working. You're breaking God's law. We might think of the way that they tithe mint and dill and cumin and yet neglect the weightier matters of the law. We might think of the way that they rebuke Jesus and his disciples for not washing their hands before every meal. They had turned their ministerial authority, their actual authority to declare what God said into a magisterial authority. So that instead of serving as ministers, they had made themselves out to be magistrates, legislating laws and turning their traditions into commandments. And in doing so, they laid a heavier burden on God's people than they were meant to bear. Incidentally, that's the same difference between the way that Roman Catholics think about their authority as magisterial and the way that Protestants think about authority as ministerial. They become heavy-handed. They began to bind people more than they should. And so while they had a right authority, they were abusing that authority. They were not only heavy-handed leaders, what's worse is that they had become hypocritical leaders. You see that uh, in verses 5 through 7, and and also in the statement that they preach but do not practice. Uh, Listen to what he says here. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Now, Matthew uses the language of hypocrisy 14 times throughout this gospel. Half, seven of those times, will be in this chapter as he gives the woes on these scribes and Pharisees. A hypocrite, of course, is someone who lives in a way that stands in contrast to what they profess to believe. Jesus says they honor God with their lips while their heart is far from them. One author puts it this way, hypocrisy is a kind of religious fraud. Think again about these two groups. 
the scribes and the Pharisees, those who are very serious about studying God's Word and those who are very serious about living out God's Word, are those bad things? To be a serious student of God's Word and to to seek to apply God's Word in your life? Those are good things. In fact, those are really great things. And yet sinners can take even great things, even the best things, and turn them on their heads, can't they? What's the danger for those who know a lot, like the scribes? Well, the danger is in knowing a lot, you know a lot, but you don't actually practice what you know. And we see that with the scribes. The first time we meet the scribes in the Gospel of Matthew uh, is when the king comes asking, where is the Messiah to be born? And they know the answer. They can search the Scriptures, and they can, they can give the answer that the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. And yet, even though they know the right answer, they don't go and greet the king. They don't go and worship him the way the Magi did. Right knowledge did not lead to right practice. And what's the danger for those who focus on doing a lot? Like the Pharisees. Well, the danger there is to seek to do things in order for recognition. In order to be seen by others. And I think as Christians, as those who love to study God's Word and, and who seek to be doers of God's Word, we all face these dangers of hypocrisy. The danger of being hearers of the Word and not doers on the one hand, as James tells us. And the danger on the other hand of being doers of the Word but doing it in order to be seen by others. And there's a myriad of ways in which those sins play out in our lives. Jesus brings up three examples of the way that those sins were being manifested in the lives of the scribes and the Pharisees. He says they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. He says that they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. And he says they love being called rabbi by others. In all of these things, they are seeking the praise and the glory of men rather than the praise and the glory of God. And in fact, they were using even religious symbols as a way to gain that recognition. The ESV translates this as phylacteries. Phylactery is the Greek word for an amulet. Uh, but it's really, it's taken from Hebrew. Uh, the Hebrew word for this is the tephilin. And uh, the, the Jews, you see, they took Deuteronomy 6 very literally. Uh, Nathaniel read for us from Deuteronomy 6. He read from Matthew, where Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 6, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? And uh, part of that uh, way in which you would demonstrate that his law was always on your heart and on your mind was that you would, you would write it on your forehead and on your arm. And they took this quite literally, and so they had these little boxes, the tefillin, and they would wear it on their forehead with, uh, with straps, and they would bind it on their right arm with straps. Uh, and they had this tradition of also wearing fringes on their garment. The Hebrew word is tzitzit, 
uh, they wore tzitzit on their prayer shawls uh, so that when they prayed. And these are two traditions of the Jews, right? And I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't go after the tradition. In fact, uh, we think that Jesus practiced these traditions. You remember the story where the woman goes and she touches the fringes of his garment. That's the tzitzit. Jesus doesn't go after the tradition itself. He recognizes that there are traditions that are, are seeking to help undergird, undergird obedience to God's law. Right? We have our own traditions. Uh, when, when I uh, was praying earlier, probably most of you closed your eyes and bowed your head. Maybe some of you even folded your hands. Why do you do that? I know why I do it, because growing up, my parents taught me to do it, that closing my eyes and folding my hands would free me from distractions. The Bible doesn't regulate that, and yet it's a tradition that is helpful. It's helpful in in terms of keeping children, especially from all of the distractions around them and focusing them on God's Word and on prayer. We have other traditions Our service times, God tells us to come and to worship on the Lord's Day. He doesn't tell us when, but it's helpful for you all to know that we meet at 1030, isn't it? Otherwise, everyone would be getting here at different times. There are are traditions that undergird the commandments of God that are not against it or opposed to it, and then there are traditions that are clearly opposed to it. Jesus said that uh, by the tradition the Pharisees has, had created, this korban, right, that they could uh, not give what was due to their parents if they had devoted it to the Lord, for the sake of their tradition was nullifying the Word of God. So Jesus doesn't go after the traditions themselves here, but he goes after the way in which people were using these traditions to promote themselves and to bring honor and recognition to themselves. They were making their phylacteries broad. And they were making their fringes long. Uh, if, if a fringe was good, then a really long fringe must be better, right? Especially if it enables others to see it. Uh, if, if I do this when I pray, what if I just did it all the time? That, that would really show people how truly righteous and holy I am. Think of the way that the Pharisee stands up and he prays publicly in order to be seen by others versus the publican who, who cannot even lift up his head toward, toward heaven but falls on his knees and beats his breast and cries, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Meanwhile, the Pharisee says, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like these other men. The problem wasn't the tradition itself. The problem was that they sought the praise and the honor of others. And they sought it not only in the clothes that they wore, they sought it also in the the places of honor that they sought, Uh, right? They sought the best uh, places of honor at the feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. Uh, You don't get it from the English text, but both of these words begin with the Greek word proto, First, they want first place. 
They want to be in front of the eyes of everyone. And not only do they do it through the the things they wear and the places they seek, they do it through the titles. They love to be called rabbi or teacher by others. In spite of the fact that in all of these things, they were not practicing the very things that they preached. But in verses 8 through 12, Jesus shows us a better way. That real leaders, godly leaders, are not heavy-handed, nor are they hypocritical, but they're humble. Look at verses 8 through 12. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. I mentioned earlier that this has often been misinterpreted uh, and has been used to imply that Jesus taught a sort of a total egalitarianism in the church, as though there were no special offices in the church, as though there should be no teachers and no instructors. Uh, But as we've seen, Jesus already has acknowledged the authority of teachers uh, in the Old Testament church, and he will go on to institute teachers for the New Testament church. He will, by his resurrection and ascension, pour out gifts upon his church, apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers, right, and evangelists. Uh, He is going to name them, and and throughout the Scriptures, we're going to have Paul speaking of how he is the father of Timothy and how he he is the father of these churches. I don't think Jesus is condemning the presence of teachers at all. I think rather, as Hendrickson says, Jesus is here condemning the yearning for rank and for special recognition above one's fellow members. He's declaring that he alone is their teacher. Jesus understands that titles prey on our vanity and our pride. And so those who have special office in the church, I think, need to be particularly wary about this, about seeking honorific titles. There are times, obviously, when titles cannot be avoided, uh, they can be used to show respect and accord, and, but there are limits to them, and we should be careful about them. I am, I'm truly okay with you calling me Pastor Fick. That's what I am. I'm a shepherd, and teaching your children to uh, respect the offices in the church, you know, by calling me Pastor Fick, that's fine. I'm not okay with you teaching your children to call me uh, the, the most honorable, right, reverend, master of divinity, Pastor Fick. You can see how that might lead to pride. The point of all of this is that in all of these things, honor and glory is to be referred and deferred to the Lord alone we should always deflect that honor and glory to God. And that's hard. 
I'll tell you, it's hard for me when someone comes up and says, Pastor Fick, that was a great sermon. I don't know what to say. My response has become, praise the Lord. Uh, What particularly spoke to you today? Because it's very, very easy to take those subtle things, right? And obviously there are things in your life where this would apply. This is a particular place in my life as a pastor where this applies. It's easy to let those little things become occasions for pride. But we have one teacher. We have one Father who is in heaven. We have one instructor, the Christ. The gospel is a great equalizer. It's a great equalizer. We are all under the lordship of Christ. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ. We all have one Father. And even those whom God appoints as leaders, He appoints as servants, as shepherds, as ministers of His Word and not their own Word. In fact, the greatest leaders are those who are the best servants. The kingdom of Christ is sort of upside down in that way from all of the the ways that the kingdoms of this world manifest themselves. You remember that Jesus said earlier in Matthew chapter 20, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. That's the way we're used to seeing it work. Jesus said to his disciples, it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's exactly what Jesus is repeating again today. Whoever exalts himself, he will be humbled. But whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And notice Jesus says, whoever humbles himself. I think we, it's easy for us to think about exalting ourselves, right? That's an active sort of thing. But so is humbling yourself. It's as equally active as exalting yourself. One author says it like this, Humility is not just a virtue to be prayed for, it is a command to be obeyed. We are, yes, to pray for humility, but we are also to humble ourselves, to make ourselves low, to seek the honor and the reputation of the Lord and of others before our own. Have this mind among you, which was yours in Christ Jesus, right? Exalting ourselves is not our work, it's God's work. And if he is pleased to exalt us in due time, then so be it. But our endeavor should be always to please God and not man. And Jesus is the model of that. Uh, Jesus Jesus tells us 
Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This wasn't just what Jesus was teaching. It was the very sort of thing that he modeled as he takes and he he ties on the garment of a servant, right? And he gets down on his hands and knees and he washes the feet of his disciples. He does this menial task of a servant. All a picture of the way in which he is ultimately going to serve them at the cross. He's the model. He's the one whose service we are called to be conformed unto. But he is not just the model. The gospel is not about setting Jesus up as the ideal man to be a moral example to be followed. He's a model because he's the Savior. Because he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Even for a bunch of hypocrites. Even for those who have sought their own honor more than the honor of God. His service is the service that we have failed to offer because Jesus never once failed to practice what he preached. He was always perfectly consistent. The things he said, he said for God's glory, and the things he did, he did for God's glory. He preached the full demand of God's law. And he did it to the T. Not one jot, not one iota was missing from his fulfillment of his obedience to the law of God. He preached the holiness and righteousness of God and he lived it in perfect obedience. He preached humility and service and he lived it. Even to the point of death on the cross where he offered up that perfect life of obedience and sacrificial exchange for the lives of disobedient hypocrites even. And what is the result? Paul tells us the result in Philippians 2, that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You you see the, the spiral there? Though he was in very form God from all eternity, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, and he's bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. During his earthly ministry, not every knee was bowing. Not every tongue was confessing. Even though they should have. 
But there will come a day where every knee will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is what God is going to do. He is going to and has already begun in the ascension and the exaltation, the exaltation of the King of Glory, which will be perfected when all of the world confesses the name of Jesus. But right now, beloved, we bow our knees. Right now, we confess the Lord Jesus. And bowing our knees to the Lordship of Jesus looks like something. It looks like being more concerned about the honor and glory that comes from God than the applause and the glory that comes from men. It looks like exalting the honor of God and the reputation of others more than our own. It looks like finding ways to serve rather than expecting to be served. It looks like humbling ourselves, actively finding ways to humble ourselves and to give credit where credit is due. It looks a lot less like public virtue signaling and a lot more like quiet, virtuous living. All to the glory of our one heavenly Father, our one heavenly teacher. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we can uh, entrust ourselves to you, that there is no need to puff ourselves up, to honor ourselves, but rather we are conformed into the image of your Son when we make ourselves low, when we humble ourselves, and we allow you to exalt us in due time. Lord, may we seek first and foremost, above all things, your honor and your glory, Uh, Lord, it is your name that we pray would be hallowed in all the earth. Lord, may we seek to exalt the name of Jesus Christ and to make him known and not ourselves known. And Lord, we are very much like the scribes and the Pharisees, that same impulse, sinful impulse to exalt ourselves and to not practice what we preach and to, to not be doers of your word. Lord, those same sinful impulses run through our blood. And so we pray that you would deliver us of these things, that you would make us more and more by the power of your Holy Spirit working within us and even through the preaching of the word today, that you would humble us in order that Christ might be exalted. Might we be like John the Baptist who said, I must decrease and he must increase. And we pray that you would increase and that your glory and fame would be known throughout this whole world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And what a wonder to be seated at the table of our Lord where he encourages us, strengthens our faith and our resolve to live not for our own glory and honor, but for his. And the sign and the symbol that he gives us is a picture of his great humility, of the degree to which he lowered himself for our sakes and for our salvation. The bread represents his body, which is broken for us, and the wine represents his blood, which is poured out for us. And it communicates the way in which his real glory is seen in this world, 
the way in which he is high and lifted up is through the cross. Uh, This is the honor that uh, is displayed before all the world. And he calls us to come and to be partakers uh, in this glorious meal and to find in it the strength to walk in humility and love. And so as we come this day uh, to this meal, let's come with that posture, Uh, that posture that uh, sees the, the servant Jesus Christ before us and then desires to be servants like him. Uh, This meal also strengthens us in the inner man. The same way that food and wine strengthen our outer man, this meal serves to strengthen us in the inner man, uh, spiritually as we feed upon Christ. Uh, And so as we come today, let's also be mindful that God would be working in us this means of grace uh, that we might be more conformed into the image of his Son. But we also remember that this meal is not for everyone. This meal belongs to those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. This meal is for professing, communicant members of the church of Jesus Christ. And so if you belong to a church where the gospel is faithfully proclaimed, if you belong to this church and you're walking in faith and in repentance and and seeking to honor the Lord in your life, then come and find the encouragement and the refreshment that you need in this meal. But let me also say that, that even in giving this warning, that, that those who are walking outside of Christ should not come. Let me, let me also say that this warning is not to keep away those who are sincerely trusting in Christ, even though their consciences might accuse them. Maybe you've listen to this sermon today and you've thought of all the ways in which you have been a hypocrite. All the ways in which you have failed to live out God's demand. All the ways in which you have sought to be seen by others. You know, this is a great occasion for you to repent again of those sins and to come to this meal and to find the forgiveness and the reassurance that Christ offers, and also, also the strength to go out and to be conformed to his image. And so don't allow the lies of the enemy to accuse you or to keep you from coming if you truly and sincerely desire to walk more and better after Christ. That's what this meal is here for. It's a meal for sinners. Amen. Let's pray and ask that the Lord would take these ordinary elements and set them apart for this holy use. Lord, now as we come to your table, we feel very much that we, we don't, in and of ourselves, deserve to have a seat at this table. We don't really even uh, deserve to gather up the crumbs that fall from the table. And yet, Lord, you call us to come, and not just to gather up crumbs, but you yourself feed us this rich feast upon your body and blood. You give us bread and wine to remind us not only of our weakness, but of the strength that you provide. And so, Lord, we ask that you would use these ordinary elements now and set them apart for this holy use, that as we receive them in faith, a Jesus Christ himself and all of his benefits unto salvation might be truly realized and apprehended in us. Strengthen us in the inner man according to your word and sacrament, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.